This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but at Thinking Out Loud, we believe the gospel speaks to every issue, past, present, and future. And we want this to be your place to process truth. So what does it mean to live in the light of the gospel's eternal truth rather than in the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, co-founders of Thinking Out Loud, a ministry that wants to move apologetics out of the ivory tower and into your living room. Our hope at Thinking Out Loud is to see ordinary Christians advance the credibility of Christ. One way to do that is to respond to the day's news with genuine peace and resilience. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, I want to address a perennial question that I think we have, particularly as Americans, and I know a lot of you are listening from other countries, and maybe this is similar in the political context that you guys are in, but we often talk about American pragmatism, and then we run into these fascinating policy or political situations when our pragmatism, our environmentalism, our uh, moral ideals, and our math seem to conflict with each other. And so that's the broad topic that I want to explore through the lens of one of the byproducts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then some of the things that the world is going to have to adjust to on the other side of that, and then get you to help me think through this. So here's the rundown. You've seen the headlines of the fact that Russia and Ukraine supply a phenomenal part, well, not phenomenal, but a significant percentage of the world's grains, particularly corn and wheat. And you see the the headlines and the stories coming out here in the last week or so about Russia now raiding uh, Ukrainian grain silos and running off with like 400 million tons of corn or something, um, and also stealing uh, grain harvesting. A lot of agricultural equipment is being shipped, and then there's kind of this funny war going on where John Deere is remotely disabling the equipment that the Russians are stealing from Ukraine, and then the Ukrainians are probably just stripping that uh, equipment down for parts anyway. But it's it's a fascinating thing of being able to track like your stolen tractor through its GPS tracking systems and then have John Deere be able to shut that down remotely. Anyway, the food system is a mess. You're having reports of Russians telling Ukrainian farmers in occupied territory, look, you can plant, um, but you owe us 70% of the crop. And the Ukrainian farmers being like, yeah, that's not worth it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, as we would all see. So there's there's that thing going on. But then the ripple effect of that, when you look at particularly wheat exports throughout the Middle East and some African countries. There was a hope that India would be able to make up the shortage in wheat production this year. However, India is in the middle of a massive heat wave, and so it looks like the wheat crop in India is going to be stunted. So therefore, the surplus wheat of India can't offset the loss of Ukraine. And then now I think we're up to like 20-some countries that have imposed uh, restrictions on food exporting. So essentially, as the global situation for food gets tighter, you have more countries saying, okay, we're just going to keep what we produce and we're not sending it to other countries. So all of this, in some ways, sets up a very interesting thing of buckling down. China now is deeply working on its own personal food security situation. And so, hey, there's, I mean, there are a million variables here of fascinating ripples that this have. I mean, not fascinating. Some of them are, are very tragic 
we're going to see some real hunger in our world as an implication of, of these events. All that to say, when we look at the loss of the Russian and Ukrainian or the potential loss of that food supply, people are going to see the squeeze. It's going to drive the prices of food up in different markets at different rates. Um, and then will come the big conversation about how we use and distribute our resources. And so before I get into some interesting thoughts or questions on that, have you have you seen any of this in the news anywhere or tracking with any of this or have any questions of clarification on the rant I just went on? I like the rant. It's helpful. Yeah, I think let, let's dig into the word pragmatic and pragmatism just for a second here so we can get our bearings. If you describe somebody as pragmatic, I think that's pretty straightforward. You mean that they are practical, sensible. Pragmatism, actually, there is some baggage there. You could make an argument that pragmatism is really the one truly American philosophical tradition. We're a country that's a little short on philosophies, but that is a very real vital tradition here. Figures like John Dewey, William James. But essentially, pragmatism as a philosophical stance prioritizes application over theory. So what does that mean? It means it prioritizes what actually works. And in some of its more, I would say, cynical manifestations, pragmatism can actually prioritize what, quote, works over considerations of the truth and over ethical considerations as well. And so some of the newer figures associated with that would be people like Richard Rorty or, in some cases, Stanley Fish, although Fish is definitely, he lives up to his last name. He's a slippery figure, and he's hard to pin down there a little bit. But certainly, he gives really good voice to that position of prioritizing what works over what's true, what's good, what's beautiful. So go with practical, feasible, on-the-ground solutions. I think that is relevant here because that is in the DNA of the Ameri of, of Americans. That's just a deep part of the American well, mindset. So, yeah. So this is my question. Yeah, I'm going to say yes and amen to that historically. However, what I want to brainstorm a little bit is, is there a shift that's going to happen here? And and so let me, let me run it by you this way. So you have a lot of grain that's in Ukraine that's already harvested that needs to get out. And so Romania is putting down a lot of track right now. However, you run into the practical difficulty that the rail lines in Ukraine are different gauge than European rails, so you can't just run trains in and out of Ukraine into Europe. Add in the fact that we now have like floating mines in the Black Sea all over the place. You can't ship it out um, without the risk of blowing up, you know, a shipload of food. So, so there's some real logistical challenges there. So, here's here's where you, you talked about pragmatism going with what works over the theory. If you look at the loss of the Ukrainian corn export, for example, it's like 1.8 million bushels. Um, where, where could that be made up? Well, I think a lot of people would look at the American corn production and say, look, we, I think the last number I saw was 15 billion bushels of corn last year, 40% of which goes to the production of ethanol for fuel and our fuel tanks to meet EPA requirements and government restrict, you know, ideas about sustainable energy, which I mean, the whole like corn subsidy, I mean, I recognize this is a massive fight between a massive 
corn growing interest and a massive fuel producing interest. But we're set up this year to burn like six times as much corn in our gas tanks as we're losing from the war in Ukraine. So the question would be here, if Americans are truly pragmatic and we say, look, the numbers are going to get skewed all over the place here. I don't, I'm not sure that there's a chance that we would give up our environmental policy in order to offset food difficulties. So, and if we don't do that, then we're now in the territory of going with theory and policy over what works. So this is just, I mean, we want to get more to a Christian perspective of this later, but recognizing the culture that we live in is part of that. So, so that's where I don't know, like, it's hard for me to foresee America making prag or, or even having the structure and framework to make the practical choices here in some ways, if it meant you see, you see the question that I'm, I'm wrestling with here of, are we mm-hmm. really pragmatic or is pragmatism really the ethos of what we live with now? Or are there points in which our theory, particularly when it comes to the environment, does our theory trump practicality in some of these categories? I could be misreading you, but it does seem to me that you may be overestimating the nobility of pragmatism because as as I see it, I think it tends to what works, that tends to be a pretty narrow lens. And I don't I think so most people on the ground, I think, see what works as really how does you know what best supports my lifestyle. And so what some of the considerations you're bringing in have a bigger vision of the overall welfare of others and maybe, I don't know, we could use a phrase like the common good. But America is such an interesting mix because into this kind of concoction, you also have consumerism, which is very rampant in the United States. And here we can get real practical on that. We basically... We are, we're one of the most wasteful nations on the planet. And you actually would be in a better position to spell that out in numeric terms and point to some of the many, many habits that make that true. But so Americans, we're accustomed to live in real affluence with a high degree of luxury that is pretty, pretty unusual. Most people don't have that. And so, Wait. yeah. Well, I'm just saying, so I think like, to, to to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly is you're saying that American pragmatism is alive and well at the individual level, but maybe at a collective or national identity hasn't been the case. Is that, is that yes, what you're pointing I, that, toward? I could be wrong, but that does it does seem that way to me. And again, let's honor the complexity. There are going to be major geographic distinctions here on how that shakes down. And there, and and actually, that will. There's a political spectrum here, so there are certain, of course, political stances that are much more concerned with a vision of the general well-being or the ecology of the planet, and then there are others that tend to be much more narrowly focused on the individual. So I do think you're, you'll you'll see some mm-hmm. variation there, but. I'm going to I'm going to float something else out here, Nathan, and because this is thinking out loud. 
I think in some cases, some of those those political qualifications are important. But generally speaking, I think if you look at mo- at the lifestyles and the habits of most people in North America, you'll have you'll the picture that emerges is that more selfish brand of pragmatism. So, for what it's worth, yeah, no, that's helpful. So, uh, yeah, so let's just hold both of those in the back of our minds as we waltz through this, then, because we're saying that what happens when what we think is morally right or ideal runs into the hard reality of math of saying there's a limited supply of this and we have to we have to prioritize between different ideals such as what we do with a third of our corn or something like that um the other well, element think, there is me, maybe most of us don't think thinking big enough of a picture for that to actually be a question that bumps into us on a daily basis. Well, let's take this. Let's take the war in Ukraine right now. I think a lot of people are a lot of us are. I'll just I'll speak speak of all of us. A lot of us look at that and we feel a deep sense of moral outrage. And that's important. But then I think when we start to face some of the practical consequences of that conflict, at the gas pump, or when supply chains are affected. And then I think for many people, there's another sort of haunting moment where, where it's just kind of, well, this isn't working. We've got to come up with, we have to fix this quickly because I've got to drive to this place. And I, and basically, I don't want to really change the way I live. So I, I think that the rubber hits the road, no pun intended there, when we actually face the possibility of having to change our lives, having to alter our lifestyles, eat less of this particular kind of food, drive less. That just seems, the fact that that seems so unimaginable to North Americans is, that's a very significant fact. That says a lot about the entitlement that comes along with living (laughs) in in this nation. A lot of other okay, places so, don't have that luxury. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's make a turn here then, and let me ask you this question. We talk about. So here's where I'm torn because American pragmatism, I think, is awesome and hilarious, and it's why we often end up sticking our faces in stuff and getting stuff done, and have been on the cutting edge of a lot of things too. Now, lots of disasters and train wrecks that have gone along with that approach. On the other hand, there has been a certain national grit to just figuring it out and making it work um that has been part of our history so we want to again honor the complexity of that that being said when we look at the things that as a nation and and as individuals that we've applied that pragmatic grit to most of those are in categories that are not that important to jesus so when you look at the things that christ says to focus on and to pursue you know, why do you worry about what you'll eat and what you'll wear? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That type of, um, you know, you have these needs and your heavenly father knows them. You pursue what the kingdom of God is about, and I'll take care of the needs until you don't need to be here anymore, and then the end is up. There's there's a real tension there between, and so I guess this is the question that I'm 
that I'm hoping we get, we're getting, so we're 14, 15 minutes into this and we're just getting around to the heart of the question of that as a Christian in our modern time. And we look at some of these things, I think certainly a lot gets put onto the category of stewardship and handling our resources well, and thinking about what we're doing with that. On the other hand, the teachings of Jesus are phenomenally impractical, economically speaking, where his, his call to give to the poor and to the needy and to feed, um, don't take into account any ideas of comfort and security, um, you know, that we would, we would normally see. And so I, I think that's a tension that we live in as Christians in our time of seeing needs, not knowing how to meet them or seeing needs, having the resources to meet them, but saying, if we do this, then what about this in the future? And there's this, uh, difficult prediction that we have, we, we, we put a lot on the what ifs of the future that impede us doing a lot of things right now. And so there's a balance there of being accurate and foreseeing well the consequences of our actions and then wrestling with balancing that out of the decisions that we make now. And so that's the tension that I think, you know, we started off with like corn exports in Ukraine, but now we can bring this to a home level of how do we use what we have in a Christ-like way, even if it doesn't seem to be practical from the categories that our culture says are important. Does I, I don't have anywhere to go with that. I'm just sitting in that tension. Am yeah. I articulating that well? You are. Well, let's, first of all, you're right. Let's give pragmatism its due. It is something to celebrate as well, the, the American pragmatic tradition. And if there's one word that comes to mind when I think about the United States, it is innovation. And that's what we are. We are a zealous group of innovators and problem solvers. Now, the disadvantages there tend to be that we are short-sighted when it comes to historical considerations, when we're not so... America is having a hard, has a hard time wrestling with its past and learning with its from its past because it's so forward-focused. I think in some ways a big reckoning is happening there and that's changing a little bit. But it also means that we tend to go with short-term solutions sometimes to big problems, clever as they are. This happens in politics. This happens in economics in the United States. But I think something else that's really interesting here is you're using the word. I think you were using, yeah, you were using words like what, what benefits us and what benefits others. And I think one Let's bring in the notion of sacrifice here, because if we're going to be committed to some kind of ethical cause, whether we're supporting a nation that's at war, that's under attack, or whether we're choosing to forego some particular product or to drive less, to abstain from eating as much red meat or something like that, what's, what is the, what's the nature of that sacrifice? So this runs the risk of sounding slightly abstract, but just hold on for just a second. Because I think in the United States, we are big on sacrifice if it serves to benefit you in some way, if it's for the, for the sake of a long-term career advancement, for instance, or for the sake of some kind of long-term personal gain. You make some sacrifices now, save money right now so that eventually... You have enough money for a down payment on a house. You make some sacrifices now so that eventually you've got a good, you've got a safe retirement. So 
that's that's technically sacrifice, but if, I think we would agree that's not the most noble form of sacrifice, which is what you're talking about when you bring in Christ. So when Christ tells us to take up our cross, that he doesn't have in mind storing, you know, setting, you know, basically saving money so that you can retire well and play lots of golf. Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but the kind of sacrifice he has in mind is you're giving up things for the sake of other people. And that is something that is foreign to the American mindset, I think. And so you can be... So you're talking... Yeah. Go ahead, Nathan. You're you're talking about... So there's real sacrifice, and then there's momentary discomfort for future pleasure. So Correct. I, so there, there's there's a difference there. I think what you're saying is much of what we're saying is sacrifice ultimately is for my own benefit in the long run. If that's so, then sacrifice isn't the right word, is it? Right. I, so, I mean, so it's more think of about a, the uh, yeah. Well, the phrase hard work and sacrifice would be would would really not be sacrifice in the full sense of that word as 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 we would be speaking about it when we talk about Christ's admonition okay. to us. Yeah. So. All right, so to jump back out to our original topic to ask a question that I think highlights the tension I'm getting at, here's the, here's the question, the, the million-dollar question. Would NATO be willing to sacrifice its environmental goals for the next two years in order to feed the people that will go hungry because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? So let me say that again. Would we be willing to sacrifice our carbon emission goals for the next two years in order to feed the countries that are going to suffer because of this. So, so, so let's just assume that we'll go with the idea that if we changed a bunch of our laws around, that it would be a real damage to the environment. Um, and I think there's some good questions to that. And I think a lot of our policies that are posturing as environmentally friendly are not. So try to bracket all of that and set that aside. But we're talking about the idea here of, in the West and in certain regions, so let's just yeah, let's put it at NATO to hold it at a distance, have, have we made preserving the environment now a higher priority than feeding hungry people? Or how do, how do we work that out? So that's at the big level, but then bring that down to the personal level of if sacrifice is a real thing and it's something that we're actually called to do, that means that real suffering and damage and long-term negative consequences will need to happen in your life in order for something good to happen in the short, possibly even just in the short term. Am I getting that right? So if we're talking about real sacrifice, there, there's a sense in which it isn't a zero or it is a zero. Well, zero sum isn't the right word there, but there's, there's a real triage that has to happen between certain ideals that we that we hold as a culture and commands of Christ, and I think the challenge of being a Christian is being willing to cross those thresholds based off of what um, is before us at the present moment. Yeah, real sacrifice will come at a cost to you, one that you won't necessarily recover. And I'm wondering, Nathan, whether you think whether you because I think you're very conversant on this conversation, particularly as it pertains to environmental justice. I'm curious about how you would answer that, the NATO question. Do you, do you think that, I mean, I know it's somewhat speculative, but do you, do you think if circumstances get are dire enough 
those environmental policies will be rewritten for the sake of feeding feeding people? Well, so here's here's the hang up on this is that part of the assumption that we're making is that we live on a world with a limited food supply. Um, we could take, not to harp on ethanol again, but we could take the 150 million acres that we're using to grow ethanol right mm -hmm. now. No, scrap that. We could take the acres that we're using to grow corn for ethanol right now and produce food for another 150 million people on that acreage if we wanted to grow different things there. So that being said, our world is not short of the of the resources necessary to feed humanity. And so even when you push into some of these reports about this, they would say, oh, yeah, you know, um, climate change is really destroying uh, crop production in uh, Nigeria. Well, then you go look at the actual report and it's like, oh, and Boko Haram burning everything and chasing everybody around and nobody can live in instability because of the social and political elements going on there. So really, this is a, I think it's a more grievous sin because we're not actually operating out of scarcity. We have a world of abundance. I think since the 1960s, we've been producing more food than can be consumed on our planet while still having people who are living in severe famines. But all of that is political. It's not, it's not that God created a deficient earth in order to feed the people that are on it and even do so with abundance. And so... I think there is a certain thing for us to recognize that we live in a country where more people will die from obesity this year than starvation while there mm -hmm. are millions. Um, so I, I, there is a challenge there for us to think creatively about what we'll do. And I, and I also think that that will come back to local congregations and denominations sorting that out. I don't think the government uh, has the freedom in some capacities to actually um, work that out well. So that doesn't really answer your question. It's just to say we don't want to have this conversation acting like there's a scarcity of resources. No, mm -hmm. there's there's sufficiency. It's a distribution thing, and it has more to do with the heart of man than it has to do with um, some of these other seemingly more political factors. Yeah, that's a very profound meditation on the state of affairs because you do the word scarcity. You you see that thrown around quite a lot. But it's one thing to hear that and to think, wow, we have lim we have severely limited resources. The world is not enough. And it's another thing to recognize that, no, these are these are political conflicts that are preventing what we what, what you know, what is basically here in abundance from getting to people who desperately need it. Yeah. And I think also, Nathan, your, your so remark I about. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please. Well, your remark about the, the local church is really important here as well. And it's going to push against some of the common wisdom because I'm going to say something else here that'll sound, I don't think it'll sound that strange to our listeners, but the government, it's not just that, yeah, they, they don't have the government, it says a very abstract way of the, the government, it's kind of like the media, the government doesn't have as much power, I think, as you would be led to believe by the headlines. So these are very serious problems. And we say, you know, political conflicts, corruption at all sorts of different levels, particularly in developing nations. But we also have to hold in tension the fact that, yeah, but the only way anything is going to change, yes, we're going to need policies. And 
yes, you'll need some funds and all of that. But even people who have looked at the the real dynamic behind foreign aid, for instance, will tell you it has to that money, those the, whatever wherever wherever that aid is coming from, those dollars have to be invested on a local level and invested, not just given, invested into some kind of a microeconomy. In other words, people on the ground, wherever they are, need to start doing things and making a difference, a tangible difference for the specific needs of their communities. And the same is true here. And again, as Christians, if we're in in our little humble churches, you are your your gatherings of the kingdom of God. And so what you do in Christ's name is part of that tangible difference. I think it's it's important to hear that because we you want to if you talk in huge terms of governments and policies and all of that, it runs the risk of taking your own responsibility out of the equation here, I think. Yeah, let me just reiterate that because so if we're looking at Paul's speech in Acts 17 about God ordaining the times and the places that we would live, well, he follows that up, you know, insinuating that that would be the best place for us to reach out and, and have a relationship with God. But if we look just at the first part of that, there's a sense in which we could say, well, okay, I don't live in Romania right now on the border. Um, so that's an interesting thing to see what will happen over there. Well, yeah, that's true, perhaps. And maybe you are listening there. And thank you. Uh, if, you if you are and you're working on this and on a real like people in your homes, um, you know, or ref if you're taking in refugees any place in the world. So all of this to say, I, I don't I don't want us to get distracted by saying, you know, it's just this issue and it's just, quote, over there. The bigger thing is, is to say, OK, my name is fill in the blank and I live in fill in the blank. And as a Christian named fill in the blank who lives in fill in the blank, what is it that God has for me to do here? And so I think there is a sense in which and this plays off of what Cameron was saying, we could be so practically distracted by a need on the other side of the world that we actually don't have the resources or the logistic logistical capability to meet and miss out on what's happening right under our noses or right around the corner from where we are. And so that's the importance, I think, of the local church is I think there are things that we grieve and we have a heavy heart about and we want to, I've often said, I think one of the hallmark um, signs of the Holy Spirit on small Christian churches moving forward will be creativity. I think it'll be a gift of the spirit that God will um, inspire us with really unique and creative ideas to meet needs and challenges that are bigger than we could dream up. However, that being said, I don't know that God is going to assign us to something else if we're not already doing what he's already asked us to do. And so when you find yourself in a situation, either as an individual or as a congregation who's trying to make good decisions on this, the first thing maybe isn't, what would God have us do next? It's what is God already asking us to do? And when we do that well, then he'll resource us to do the next thing that he has for us to do. So again, I think that's one of the things that Jesus always does when people came to him with big problems. Hey, did you hear about this tower that fell over there? Uh, you know, natural disaster. And he said, yeah, well, what about you? You know, are you better than they are? So he always drives it back to the individual and not that he's not disinterested in what's going on, quote, over there, but he's penetratingly interested in what's happening in there, meaning within our lives and the way that we respond to some of these things. I think also 
there's a sense, there's a time in which lament is a real thing. And it's the only thing to do. Plenty of old Testament prophets did that where there's just a sorrow before God at the shape the world is in. And there's a brokenness to it. It's not necessarily depressing when we recognize that God is in control of it, but a, a real grief is there, a real curiosity. And I personally am thankful for all of you who are listening to this, who are faithfully following Christ and are embedded in the systems that you're in to make decisions and enact change in different organizations and corporations and companies and maybe even nations, but certainly in your own homes and households and local congregations. So it's just one of those things. It's a, it's a tension that I sit in. And I just wanted to spread the misery around by bringing this up with the rest of you. But I think I need to articulate this verbally out loud from time to time to recognize that the things that Christ calls me to may very radically bump up against the pragmatism that our culture um, idolizes at so many times. And so let's make sure, or I want to make sure that I'm being faithful to the things that Christ is asking of me where I am now and that I'm not losing focus on that because of what I think um, some pragmatic um, cultural idealism would suggest I should do. And I think a good word here for us as Christians to remember is a sense of tension and discomfort. That's that's the normal, that's part of the, I like this word, quiddity, basic quality of feeling of being a Christian in the world. And so if you feel that sense of tension, it's not just that Nathan and I are spreading misery here or commiserating. We're also here to tell you <laughs> <laughs> that's normal. There is nothing wrong with you. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. It will put you, it'll set you at odds with a lot of the habits, practices, and basic just ways of life around you, the zeitgeist. And that's okay. And that's yeah. why we need each other. Yeah. So, so we can't live well without, we can't live well without using resources. So let's be realistic about that. And we can be thoughtful about how we do it, but that's part of the way that we were created in the world is that we live with resources. Also, there's a deeper spiritual truth here is that we can't live without sacrifice. And so whether it's a cow or a spinach plant, something has to die in order for us to live. And when we look at real sacrifice modeled for us in the person of Christ, giving up things that we hold dear, particularly our lives, for the sake of the other is a tall task and it's a big challenge. And I don't always know what to do with that. Um, mm. But I pray that God makes it clear to all of us who are trying to figure that out to say, are we willing to follow in the way of Christ for the sake of the other, even in the short term? Gave a cup of cold water in my name uh, isn't really a big sacrifice. So perhaps you're being called to sacrifice something great or perhaps you're being called to give something small in the name of Christ. Let's uh, keep our water cool in the name of Christ and look for people who have some of what we need, both physically and spiritually. And I think that's a place where when we put ourselves in that willing posture, the Lord can use us uh, as he see fit. We'll, let, we'll run the play and let him uh, kind of quarterback and, and see what the big picture is. But let's be people who are faithful to do our part when we don't know how to fix some of the bigger problems we see in the world. You've been listening to so, thinking. Anyway. Yeah, go ahead, Cameron. Do you want me to say something for the interns? I'll do that again. Just say we, you've been listening to thinking out 
yeah, I don't know. Make it up. It'll be great. By the way, once again, we do want to mention this to you. At Thinking Out Loud, we're growing and we are looking for interns who would be willing to help us with that growth. You get to work with Nathan. That'll be a lot of fun. The bad news is you have to work with me as well. But anyway, if that sounds... In- sacrifices, people. Sacrifices. That's right. So if that sounds interesting to <laughs> you, Nathan, the email address that they that you'll want to attach your inquiries to is info info at toltogether.com info at toltogether.com and just in case you missed it you are listening to Thinking Out Loud a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud if you'd like to learn more about what we do book Nathan or Cameron Or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.